Hello and welcome to Take My Advice, I'm not using it. I'm Ollie Henderson and after a bout of illness I've just about recovered my voice enough to bring you the penultimate episode of this series. I talked to Christine Armstrong, the founder of Armstrong and Partners and a researcher, consultant and writer about the future of work. I became aware of Christine's work through her fantastic vlogs which she publishes every week on LinkedIn. They cover all matter of subjects related to work and life including the perils of Zoom pain of homeschooling and the problem of assuming that flexible work is the answer to all our work-life challenges. She also offers a refreshing take on some of the steps organisations need to take to make work better. And I enjoy not just her videos, but her writing on the subject, as well as her book, Mother of All Jobs, released in 2018. Christine also writes for The Telegraph, Grazia and Management Today, amongst others. Now, there are a lot of folks throwing around platitudes and empty opinions at the moment related to work and how that intersects with our personal lives. And you'll discover in this podcast that Christine is not one of those people. We chatted about the difference between flexible and remote work, burnout, how businesses need to think about redesigning work at an organisational, team and individual levels, and also how business models affect our understanding of the way we expect people to work, specifically the inherent problems of using time as the primary output. If you've enjoyed recent podcasts, please make sure you check out my newsletter, Future Work Life, which I'll link to in the show notes. And of course, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review if you've got time. So onto my conversation with Christine. We'd had a chat to prepare for the podcast a few days before and she'd mentioned that there are some fundamental problems related to the idea of flexible work. I'd started the year by considering how we approached the evolution of flexible work. So my first question was whether I'd wasted my time. So I think we have to be really careful about what we're talking about when we say flexible work. So there's an article in the Times today with an unnamed minister saying uh, what we've learned this year is that flexible work works really well and that it should be a default setting. So we're going to consult on that. And it literally makes my blood boil. I kind of want to tear into this minister who is unnamed, which is tricky because I don't know who they are. Um, so what we've learned in the last year is that we can re- work remotely and that that can work. You know, banks continue to operate, planes continue to fly, trains run, all great. But what we've seen as a consequence of that is the other axis of flexible work, which is being able to limit the time that you spend working. So, for instance, if you have a three day week contract, um, you know, want to finish every day at four, pick up your kids from school or you've got something else going, whatever, that that stuff is more difficult. And it's more difficult remotely a year in than it was if you work in an information based job, uh, which a large percentage of the UK economy does. So if you are um, a train driver, a dentist, a surgeon, a chef a waiter you can work flexibly it works brilliantly you go in you can't do your job anywhere else you go in you do your job you piss off fine you get paid for what you do that works fine when it's information based and when your reward comes from having access to lots of information and your status is attached to keeping in the information flow it's really really difficult for people to limit their hours and what we've done by moving everyone remotely is that any barriers people had so maybe they had their email on their phone but maybe they didn't have their slack systems or Maybe they didn't have their teams or other platforms that use. Now, all of that is kind of on every device people are using. And what we're seeing as a consequence is what we've heard from Goldman this week, juniors working 18 hours a day, having breakdowns, losing two stone. Um, so I think there's a quote in The Guardian today from one junior at Goldman saying that three to six people on any given team are off sick at the moment with burnout. And that is a consequence of remote working, which some people call flexible working. Yeah, that distinction is pretty important, isn't it? If we assume that flexible work means much more than just where you work and indeed the hours that you're working, where do companies even start in 
trying to make work more flexible because I don't think the concept of flexible working in its in and of itself is a bad one no it's not it's a good thing and people need boundaries between home work to be productive to keep healthy as we see from the burnout numbers at the moment so I think the place to start is not with flexible work the place to start is with your entire workforce and how you put in boundaries between their life and their work and most companies have avoided doing this because they think it's in their interest for them to work as many hours as possible so companies have shied away from it like well if they work 18 hours a day it's not our fault they they've just got no discipline and what you see from companies when you go and talk to them about this is this big pushback well people need to set their boundaries but it's very difficult in an insecure workplace where people are competitive where you want to do a good job for your clients you don't want to let your colleagues down very difficult so i turn off all my devices at five when i stop being paid no one does that really do they if they're ambitious so i think that companies Mm. need to start with the whole workforce and help them put in boundaries and we see this microsoft has put in a virtual commute i think from 8 30 to 9 30 in the morning to say take an hour out don't do calls don't do emails have breakfast with your family do some exercise like take a break when you would have been on a train or a bus or in a car uh channel four i think is taking an hour at lunchtime i haven't heard much about the end of the day, other than the European turning off email at seven or eight or whatever, there's quite a lot of pushback on that because then some people say, well, if I'm doing, you know, kids stuff from five to seven, I want to be able to do my email later. So having a blanket ban may not work, which kind of hints at the complexity of this. But what you want to achieve as an employer is for people to be able to say, I'm going to work at these times in a really productive, focused way. I'm not going to be on Facebook and Twitter. I'm going to be in what I'm doing and then I'm going to stop and do something else and not what we're seeing at the moment which is a constant fracturing of attention where people are on three different online platforms getting instant messages getting phone calls doing zooms getting emails and they're not focused on anything at all at the end of the week they feel really low energy because they can't point to what they've done but they've worked an enormous number of hours I completely agree with all of that. I think the problem still lies, though, that people write this stuff into policy, but they don't necessarily see their bosses sticking to it. And and this is a massive hangover, isn't it? Which to this sort of idea that to get to the top, you need to do more than other people. And obviously, presenteeism within an office kind of suggested that that. But it's absolutely still happening now. You know, the, the, the answering and sending of emails sort of whether passive aggressive or not at certain hours of the day. Mm-hmm. still remains and as you said because people are more available because they're connected across every single device it makes it really difficult to step away if you can see that your boss is not doing so so is it a case of modeling behavior is that enough what are the approaches a business needs to go through to make sure it sticks so I think the first thing is to acknowledge how new this is. Like I, I mean, obviously I'm extremely old, but I remember email being installed on my computer on my first ever job, which must have been about 96 or 97. I'm wondering whether people would ever use it. So what we had prior to that was a sense that, and I've interviewed parents from that, people who were parents before that, who was like, you went into work, you worked really hard and then you left right? And you couldn't pick up your computer mm. and put it in the car. We didn't have laptops, didn't have Blackberries, you didn't have remote email. So the day was constrained. And sure, some people might work to seven or eight, but they didn't check their messages before they went to bed and first thing in the morning. So this has crept up on us in a relatively short period of time, in 20 years, basically. And we've allowed it to. And your generation, my generation, we've been trained like Pavlov's dogs, get a get a message, like, let's respond, let's respond, we're going to be on it. You're like, we're really responsive. And that's fine when you've got F all else to do. If you've got no other responsibilities, you can do that. 
you know, 16 hours a day if you want to, and, you know, be perfectly okay with that in yourself. The problem comes down the line where you go, actually, there's other stuff I want to do in my life. You know, whether that's join a football team, whether that's raise a family, whether that's have a dog, whether your parents are not well, whether you want to start a side hustle. And then it gets really tricky. And then that's where people start like, oh, well, maybe if I work flexibly, that'll do it. And it doesn't on the whole. It really doesn't. Because generally what people do is negotiate a contract with lower pay and then continue to work the same hours and then end up really pissed off and really frustrated and really demotivated and attached. So I think um, in terms of how you change it, I think it's really it's a combination of things as big change always is. But there's a strategic intention from the company to say, how do people want to work? What would be better, which has to be written down, although just writing it down won't be enough. And then it's practicing and training and talking about it through teams because the biggest problem you get with flexible working policies is somebody in HR says oh our gender pay gap's absolutely horrible um I know what we'll do we'll have a flexible working policy and then all the ladies who have babies they can come back and do three days a week and it's creates this awful two-tier system where people come back from maternity leave get encouraged to take flexible work very often don't worry you can keep your big job it's going to be fine take it realize they've got no status they don't get pay rises they don't get bonuses and they don't get paid for two days a week but they still pretty much cover them remotely um and then people say i don't i don't know why the men are all at the top i can't understand why the men are still running the company we've got no women in our management leadership pipeline so i think that's a horrible thing about flex and that's one of the things i really struggle what actually going to change this things seem to be weighted towards people spending more time working that's just that just seems to be the reality and we know that that's bad intellectually we can read all the data about the mistakes and the productivity but we don't change it so i think what it's going to take is and we see this with the four-day week right we see there are companies who are trying to break the model we see it in germany with tech companies trying out six-hour working days where you literally go in Mm. nothing else for six hours and then you leave and everyone's in for the same six hours and i think there is this move with you know companies companies trying to work out a better way of working and I think if they can set an example that means bigger companies look at this on three different levels so there's the organizational level what's our policy what's our strategy which should be based in research of what's really going on day to day there's the team leader level so how are we rolling that through the organization what role models are setting and then there's the individual level so are you rewarded for working 90 hours a week yes or no if you are there's a good chance you're going to keep doing it and it's only if you can think about it on those three levels that I think we can be serious about change hmm. yeah I had uh, Alex Sujung Kim Pang on the oh, show it. like at the end of last year yeah he's uh yeah he, he wrote the book shorter about the four-day work week and having studied spoken with and studied hundreds of companies there were very few which had negative performance financially and of course this is the thing which people use as the excuse often yeah. it's like well you know, we don't know how that's going to affect us. Business conditions are tricky. What are clients going to think? So that's yeah. the other thing. So I've been doing work with a law firm over the last few weeks. And, um, you know, I just get this. We have to be on 18 hours a day. We don't understand why we've got no female partners, um, but it's what our clients want. But I've done that research with other law firms and other consultancy clients, and it's not what clients want. They're like, I don't mm-hmm. want my advisors emailing me at nine o'clock at night strategic papers or, you know, if there's a total crisis and we're doing an M&A, fine. There might be a couple of nights where we work through the night, but that's it. I don't want that either. I don't want this shallow, responsive, black and white thinking, which has no depth. That's not what I'm paying for. And I know they're just doing it to fill me. Yeah. 
So I think the client excuse is baloney. And I think that actually Alex's book showed that really well. I think there was one case where the client went, I don't accept not getting a response on Fridays and then found it to be absolutely fine. I think the other thing which comes out really, really strongly from Alex's research that I really love is that when you give the problem to employees, they can solve it because they know how much time is wasted during an average working week. And, you know, I worked in a research consultancy as part of WPP and people worked extraordinary hours. They worked a UK day followed by a US day, not unusual. But the amount of time that was spent, you know, rocking around, doing Facebook, chatting, and then about five o'clock, it'd be like, oh my God, we haven't got anything done. And then they'd still be there at 10, 11, Mm. ordering their dinner and getting taxis. It was totally inefficient. And loads of people are working that way. And it's, it's just damaging. It's, it's hopeless. It has been a thing for years. Certainly, and I used to do this in my previous company. If you wanted somebody to be able to deliver in a short period of time, your best bet is to look for a mum. (laughs) <laughs> someone who's someone who's got a certain number and, and I don't know whether I was kind of making this situation worse or better by you know employing people in that role but the, yeah. the, there was a thing where you you'd say well look we can we can bring somebody in they're coming after school drop off leave before pick up and actually in those hours you're guaranteed to get much more work done than you know other people within the business would do throughout the whole day so it, it proves it can be done but, but no, it's Parkinson's law. Tasks take the time that we give them, right? So if you say, I'm going to write this report in four hours, and that's the deadline, you'll shut down everything. You'll write the report in four hours. Yeah. If you're like, I've got to deliver this by Friday, you're writing the report, you're checking your email, you're booking another meeting, you're agreeing to do something you don't have to do, then it's going to take you till Friday. So we have to individually and organisationally think about the lessons in deep work, you know, Cal Newport stuff. We have to think about indistractable and near aisle and, you know, making ourselves less distractible we need to think about you know when yeah. we communicate and when we don't rather than living in this very fractured world of constant communication where we don't do any thinking and I did a little bit of work recently with a big research organization and I was like when did you last spend a whole day going through a client's data set and really analyzing it like line by line like what are the themes what are the trends what are we seeing and just doing nothing else and they're totally blank they haven't done that for years right they get the data they look at it for a bit they get distracted they come back to it and that we're doing ourselves a disservice here like this is why we've got a productivity problem in this country despite working huge numbers of hours is because we're we think we're working but actually we're communicating hmm yeah, it's a good breakdown, actually, just to look, thinking about it at the individual team and organisational level. I think that the thing is, because as individuals, and certainly if you've been working, I don't know, for any length of time, you have been indoctrinated with this particular way of working. Mm-hmm. It is a big shift, isn't it? Just the, the mindset shift to understand that I can work differently. I'm, a, I'm allowed to. But also knowing how to work differently is tricky yeah. for some people. We've read recently about wh- whether the role of managers has changed through the pandemic. And I absolutely see this through companies that I'm working with the idea that you have to reskill people into becoming coaches or facilitators I wonder whether organizations are set up to be able to do that well I do that training and learning I'm sure you do too and I do you know I was doing it recently with a a program for the NHS at finance people and um, what was really interesting you know I talked about deep work they'd never heard about it a lot of them and what they said was lots of people would say well actually now I hear that I do do it if I've got a deadline I just turn off everything and I just get on with it but they do it in a way that's not very 
thoughtful in that they just shut down their communication. Nobody knows they're going to do it. So anyone else in their team who needs information doesn't know where the hell they've gone, can't get anything. Rather than what I would encourage, which is do it in a planned way. Say, look, I've got this report to deliver on Friday, so I'm going to take this two hours out when I know I'm really productive and turn off my comms. If you really need me, you can get me. Um, but I'm doing an experiment with working that way. And when we went back three months later to see what they changed, that you know, it was quite a big course. We did a lot of things, but that was the thing that they'd all taken forward. So I think even people knowing right. about it really makes a difference. The initial response you get when you workshop it is people go, oh, I couldn't do that because my boss, my boss's boss, my boss's boss, boss. But when you say, well, why don't you just talk to them about your goals? You know, what are you trying to achieve? Then they start to find the confidence. So right, I'll try it for a week and see how I get on. And then it builds as a skill. And, and it's related to that then. So we're talking about goals. I mean, obviously there's individual goals and there are just the things that you've got to get done in your job. The other conversation which is being had more often is this idea that if you're not measuring time, what do you measure? And outcomes or outputs matter clearly. But I don't see much evidence that a lot of companies really understand what these things mean and how to shift the focus onto achieving those. So if you, it's much easier to make the argument that I'd like flexibility to manage my own time or have two hours of deep work on a Thursday morning if you can say very definitively what the outcome of that might be but how did businesses approach that problem? I think that's it's something you you and I talked about a bit when we set up this call but job design what is this job for what's the purpose of this role and then it's goals and appraisals it's like regular check-ins like what is this job for and what are the things that show us that you're doing it well and then being really analytical so say right so your job is to produce I don't know this report every month for instance or you know I don't know this financial plan every month or whatever so what time you know what how what do you need to do to do that what time do you need in order to prepare that and keeping people really grounded in what those outputs are and defining them in a very verbal way so when they look at their calendar and I did a podcast I did a vlog with um Audrey Wiggin who's a coach and she was like when when she sits down with people and says look at your calendar for the last two weeks and look at your goals and look at where they match and where they don't just absolutely shocking people spending hours on teams calls and zoom calls that have nothing to do with what they're being assessed on or what they're being paid for or their bonus so aligning like being clear with yourself and your team leader what are my goals and then aligning your job with those goals what am I trying to do here that mean that when you get a meeting quest or something that's completely irrelevant you have the confidence to say thank you so much for inviting me it's not something I've got a lot to contribute to feel free to send me the follow-up note or if there's something specific you need can I send it to you in advance but turning down stuff which we seem to have forgotten how to do very largely that's a cultural thing as well, isn't it? I mean, I, I have a habit of asking people for a very clear agenda for meetings, which I don't think seems unreadable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and also saying, well, how long does this really need to take? You know, you put in 45 minutes, but this feels like a 12 minute meeting to me. I'm slightly exaggerating, but I do get funny looks often, or at least a, a sort of a surprise. I might do it with clients as well, frankly, because I don't see why you should treat employees and clients yeah. any different. It's their time that's as valuable. But this is just a cultural thing. Those I think ideas. It's, it's, a, it's a belief that we hold that by being polite and kind is to give people exactly what they ask for. Mm. And actually, yeah. we don't believe that with children. You know, we don't just give them chocolate at nine in the morning because they want it. And what we see when, you know, I've read some research on client engagement is that clients appreciate people who are quite tough with them in the right way. I mean, not a pain in the ass, yeah. but who are 
have boundaries around their time, who are respectful of their time, but also expect to be respected, you end up with a more respectful, mutual, better client relationship where you're willing to challenge. And I think that firms that build by the hour have a real problem with that because they're always trying to expend their hour. I think it really can lead to mistrustful client relationships where the client always thinks that whatever they suggest or propose is just to add on hours. And that then the trust between the person providing that service and the person uh, buying that service is quite low. And I actually think that this hours culture perpetuates that lack of trust in those service providers. And so I would urge organisations to consider what it is that they're really selling and how they price it. Um, Because I think this sort of measuring by time rather than output, it feels like it feels like it's just not the it's not the way to go when the working day is not limited. Because it used to be if you went and you worked nine till five, that there were only seven or eight hours you could sell, right? So a client got an hour and that was probably fair enough. If you've got 18 hours you can sell, you're selling some pretty shitty hours, some low energy, low focus, distracting hours where somebody's emailing you, but actually doing something else in the, I mean, you know, I was in the park yesterday with my kids after school there's a dad who works at a bank he's on the phone the entire time now I don't know whether he's on a client call or his team call or didn't intervene but was that the best work that he could do probably not was were they mostly on mm. mute while he was watching the kids no. they were you know is is if you were buying that hour is do you yeah. want somebody who's actually focused on what you want or do you want someone stood in a park because they just got to tick off another hour in the day yeah, what about that law firm that you worked with? Because, of course, law is one of those industries that is by the hour, isn't it? And, of course, very expensive hours most of the time. So I think that law is a very conservative business. And I think there are law firms that are considering um, or are doing a lot more project-based systems and are thinking about ways to do that. And there are some um, new organisations in law who are trying to work differently from the old law firm model. I think, so one of the things that realisations that I've come to, because I started off writing about parenting at work, originally when I started, I felt that parenting and children were the problem and that's why we didn't see women at the top of organisations. What I've come to understand is actually the way that we work, the way that we work um, is excluding people who have a choice or have other pressures. And so even before they have children, a lot of them leave law firms if they can't see any way through. So I think that the wisest firms will start moving more to project-based models and focusing more on the quality of outputs and the quality of client relationships rather than just turning the wheel on hours, 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 hours. But that might be naive because it's not the way yeah. they're currently set up. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a big jump, I think, for a lot of companies. I, I'm speaking to a lot of um, businesses at the moment about subscriptions and the subscription economy. And that is a model which support quality rather than time. Again, it's a difficult conversation when you're saying, well, look, rather than you pay me for the number of hours I do over the next month, why don't we set up a retainer? Now, of course, the argument you make is you will not continue with that retainer if we don't continue to do a good job different business models are required probably to shift that emphasis so no I do I I think it's 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 interesting point about pricing and projects well the way I mean I work with a guy um who I I sort of like a mentor to me in many ways but he's worked as a consultant for a long time and he always says fill it by the project because then it's in your interest to do it in the most efficient but the best quality way possible because you want to continue work with the client, you want to have a relationship with them. But it's never in your interest to suggest a meeting because you want to increase the hours. So if you want to meet with them, you're being respectful of their time because it's a useful meeting. 
And and I've always found that that's just a really helpful way to think about it. Is that I'm never going to invite you to a meeting unless I think it's in both of our interests because I'm going to do a better piece of work and you're going to get a better outcome. And I never want the client to be in the back of their mind going, "Oh, she just wants to bill, yeah, you know, extra hours." <laughs> Very true. How does this all change, or how did some of these some of the things that we've experienced over the past year and some of the shifts that we've seen does some of that just revert back to normal if we return to the office? So I think the return to the office is such a brilliant and fascinating question. I'm completely obsessed with it. Um, I think what you have to consider is a number of different things. You have to look at the employee data. So what we see and different surveys come out with different numbers, but very approximately, you get about 20% of people saying, I never want to go back to the office. This is the business. And you see some of this, you know, like I'm saving 50 quid a day on train fares, lunch, you know, dealing with the world, whatever. Why would I ever want to go back? I live in a nice house. I've got a dog, whatever. Life's great. You've got another slightly less than 20% who never, ever want to work from home again yeah. uh, because they're extroverts, because yeah. they're in shared shit accommodation, because they don't have enough Wi-Fi, because it's stressful, because they hate their partner or their family, and they just want to go back to the office. And then you've got everyone in between who wants a bit of both, but no one knows how to manage mm. that, right? Because... You know, if everyone comes in on a Tuesday, there's no desks and no meeting rooms and it's absolute Piccadilly Circus. If you go in on a Monday and there's no one there, what are you going in and spending your 50 quid for? So you end up with this kind of, then you've got to manage that where your team's coming in on Mondays, Tuesdays and Wednesdays, except for, you know, George, because he doesn't work Tuesdays. So he'll have to come in on Thursday. But that means he won't overlap with the finance team as part of his job because they come in those days. So you end up with this mad matrix system. Mm. So I think uh, it's going to be a really interesting evolution of organizations figuring out through trial and error what does work and what doesn't and what i find fascinating is there are quite macho companies who go everybody back at the work goldman sachs or everybody at home twitter and you kind of go what's in the middle like you know how do we get the best working together without all the other stuff and i don't think we know yet and i think that's okay Mm. a friend of mine went back to her bank this week and um they did days work and then they got completely pissed on Prosecco. She said it was so lovely to see everyone. They had a yeah. really, really lovely time. I'm like, how nice is that? You know, people want yeah, they did. to get back in some way. Yeah, I mean, call me a cynic, but I suspect a lot of the decisions around whether people definitively come back or don't might be determined by whether people have long-term leases. But um, again, I, I can't say that for sure. Well, Goldman a billion pounds yes, on their exactly. London headquarters. So I, I, I can't think that's not correlated to their no, decision exactly. that I everyone is going back. And, uh, and it was really nice of David Solomon to say that people didn't have to work Saturdays as well. Oh, yeah, well, I interviewed someone about that because they've said that before, no calls on a Saturday. And someone else said, that's great. It <laughs> exactly. just makes Sunday like every other working yeah. day. Madness. So, I know. When you're begging to only work 80 hours a week, there's something wrong, isn't there? Yeah. I mean, but people, you know, I've got friends, I'm sure you do, who work in finance, who kind of do the, do you know what? When you start mm. salary is 100 grand, what did you expect? Um, like, if you take the money, if you don't want to work like this, that's fine. There's loads of other jobs. Like, they want the elite people, therefore they pay the big bucks, and therefore they want your soul. I think what's interesting is that for years and years and years, people have tolerated that. But this year, with the remote, yeah. they can't stand it. And I've seen this in other organisations, financial organisations I've worked with, that it, this has become a breaking yeah. point. And it's it's really interesting to see the leaders not really understand why that is. Well, and, you know, in the case of Goldman Sachs, the comments in that report were, as you said, it was tolerable before. And I think it's because you're around other people. And look, they, most of these people, you know, they, they're young graduates congregating in cities to meet their mate and to discover who they are and you don't get any of that do you know you're offsetting that and while, while you can't do that and you are as you described earlier 
and I've seen this, people sat in there on their bed working. It's difficult enough to do that for a couple of hours a day, but if you are stuck in 16 hours a day, some of the reports they were talking about is yeah. it beggars belief. The problem is I do believe it because I, I've seen people doing jobs like that. I interviewed a young guy in his 20s working in a financial organisation. He hadn't left the house for three and a half <laughs> weeks. He barely had time to get his breakfast. He was so stressed out. Like, what, what are we doing this for? You know, and I think you're right. I think the social, the camaraderie and the social interaction, the stuff that makes it worth it, if you take mm. that away, it's just yeah. relentless hard work. And it's boring and it's depressing. And I think that the loyalty that people had to their organisation is diminished because, you know, just seeing people in a box isn't the same connection. So my guess is that that slide presentation wouldn't have happened if they yeah. were all going to the office every day because their bosses would have been like, mate, if you don't want a career here, by all means, put that slide together but I I wouldn't do it if I were you but because they're so disconnected and because our paranoia and anxiety rises where we don't have the wink and the nudge and the the lift and the coffee to make ourselves feel better it's all got very very intense and you know this this comes back to the burnout point doesn't it and I think the distinction with burnout which the WHO made a few years ago is that it's a workplace problem and it's good that they make that distinction because, of course, it then puts the onus on two organisations to fix that problem. Gallup did something a few years ago, didn't they, where they looked at the importance of just having a friend at work and the significance of that to engagement. And I wonder, again, what's the right amount for people to be returning to the office in order to build that level of connection again? And it might not, it probably isn't five days a week, but it doesn't need to be five days a week. It's probably different for different people. The other thing is I did a piece of research 10 years ago on daily rituals and the stuff that you do when I worked at an agency. And the commute, people slag off their commute. People love their commute if it goes well. If they get a seat on the train and there's no traffic jam or, you know, they get their regular bus, it's the only 30, 40 minutes a day quite often where it's just them and their thoughts. Maybe they're listening to podcasts. Maybe they're listening to us. Who knows? Uh, Doing their email, reading a book, you know, watching something away home. And people really miss that Mm. interim space between two places. So I think there is a right amount of travel being out, you know, lots of people in business talk about travel being a place you know being on a plane for eight hours and actually being able to think you know my example earlier about your data sheet on a plane is when you might actually sit for eight hours and look at a big piece of data Mm. so losing that I think has been a real damage so I think you're right what's going to be the right amount of that and it's going to depend on the personality of the individual and you know the role that they're doing and how much of that is connection based and how much of that they can do independently it's going to depend on the organization and what it does and it's going to te- on the practical things as you say the office design the setup you know the length of commutes and so on so there's a huge number of variables and i think it's really hard to predict when we're all sort of locked at home mm. there is a risk though of exacerbating the problem about unfairness with working mums for example and there is a certain argument the proximity to your bosses on a regular basis can lead to promotions much more quickly which is believable of course absolutely i think organizations if they're thinking about this should be their core thing Mm. to bear in mind should be equality so how do you establish equality between somebody who's working in the office and somebody who's not working in the office and how do you make sure that they are perceived equally they have equal chance of promotion of status taken just as seriously and that's really difficult to do i co-founded a consultancy called jericho we didn't have the word in those days it was 2013 but it was a hybrid model we had an office in town but everybody could work or the consultants there was a core admin who were in the office but um team but there the consultants who worked there could come and go as they pleased and it was very obvious from very early days that the more time you spent in the office the more work you got and that's just human nature as in I see you and like hey Ollie I've 
got this thing. Do you want to help me with it? And overcoming that, thinking about ways to break that down is going to be important. I know law firms have trialed systems where if a brief comes into you and you're thinking, who do I give this to? Who do I work with on it? You will automatically default to your closest person or the person you work with on the last case or somebody you just like. And they would be forcing people to put it into a system and find out who's actually the best person. So it will be a mix of thinking about this, putting in systems in place, putting in really great tech. Uh, but if equality is central to your what you're trying to achieve, then that will change the way that you plan this. Yeah. Talking about equality, I know you uh, were on a fair few panels for International Women's Day. When we spoke the other day, you said you've got certain concerns with the, the, the principle of it. Is that right? I'm about the whole thing, really. Yeah, I'm a bit... No, I'm okay with International Women's Day, I think. I feel... It feels slightly uncomfortable to me for reasons that I probably need to express a bit more clearly and I'll think about. What I'm really unhappy about, though, in this particular, what you've asked about, is that International Women's Day has, in many cases, become synonymous with conversations about Mm. remote and flexible work. And that hacks me off. Because if remote and flexible work is like the sort of Formula 3 option for working mums, is a shorthand for the mum career track, then we're all frankly screwed because it's just not going to work either we're serious that we're going to work in different ways and we're going to give people more choices or we're not and it then we just need to be honest that you know we it's just a way to keep women in the workforce that agenda numbers don't look as appalling as they do um so i i don't want to do panels about flexible and remote working or new ways of working or hybrid work or blended work that don't include a wider audience than just women. Yeah, I mean, there is a danger with any day. I mean, there's so many days for different things now, aren't there? And it does, I mean, if you spend any time on LinkedIn, it does become a, um, I'm trying to think of the right way of putting this without sounding offensive, but I mean, there's a lot of virtue signaling going on without necessarily anything substantive behind it. Yeah, I think there is. And I think it's really hard and but important to try to step back from those bandwagon things and think about them a bit more deeply. And I think, you know, International Men's Day, what's that become synonymous with? Well, a lot of time about toxic masculinity, which I'm not yeah. sure is very helpful either. You know, why are we singling it? What do we want to achieve by these days? I think we have to be really clear in our own minds or as organisations, if we're going to do something those days, what is it that we're trying to say here? Are we saying that women are better than men equal to men need more support than men that women should be celebrated what's the underlying message and are we totally comfortable with what that is and equally on men's day are we saying men are toxic men are you know damaged they're not able to express themselves is is that i'm sorry i feel like this could be very controversial i don't mean it in that way i just think organizations can lose sight of what it is they're trying to achieve rather than acknowledge the day and the same you know with black lives matters quite frankly and lots of other issues around groups that suffer discrimination but black lives matter you know some organizations put out more announcements about black lives matter than they have black people working in their organizations mm. so what is this all for yeah yeah you're only gonna get change if people feel able to express their own opinions and actually do something about it but i think a lot of the stuff to support women diminishes men like lots of the well-intentioned stuff mm. to support women and coach women and encourage women. you kind of like 
Well, there are loads of ways that people find the workplace more difficult. Somebody who's speaking a second or third language, somebody who's racially discriminated against, somebody who's got a disability. There are lots of different things that make the workplace difficult. And I think by just trying to pick out these big kind of signature things, I mean, I know this is all intersectionality and I know we talk about intersectionality, but we, we talk about those things, but then we try and separate them all out. And I just wonder whether we lose the point of who actually finds the workplace a difficult place to operate mm. in and who may be thriving. Yeah. Big issues remain, but there have been some positives undoubtedly, which have come out of the last year. Haven't they? I mean, it's, I think it's the, it was the year's anniversary yesterday since we went into lockdown in the UK. What would you take out as mm. positives that have come from us changing the way that we work, being forced to work differently over the past year? I think there's been brilliant things to come out of it. I think um, lots of people have discovered working remotely isn't the end of the world. And I was told about a memo in another law firm that went out two weeks before lockdown saying that working from home was only for exceptional pre-approved circumstances. I don't think we'll ever see those memos again. So that's I hope we don't. So that's, I think, a great thing that's come out of it. I think lots of people have reconnected their families. I think we've seen lots of people become more aware of their families and really appreciate being home, having breakfast, dinner with their partner, their kids. Um, You know, people have got more connected to their neighbourhood. Loads of people have taken up hobbies. You know, we sort of joke about the open water swimming thing, which is a bit bit out of control on social media. Um, But, you know, loads of people have taken up Couch to 2K, Couch to 5K, um, you know, and loads of other kind of crafts and activities and hobbies and stuff which I think are really good for our mental health um so I think there's loads loads of people have reconnected into their kids and their families and have more time for that which is brilliant they've thought about food more so I think there's loads of things in life I think it always it sort of brings to mind something we talked about in the blog this week but Mo Gordat talking about the difference between happiness and fun mm. and we've taken away a lot of the fun things the pub nights and the parties yeah. and you know the holiday things and we've been forced to look for happiness in things that are more accessible. And maybe that's a good thing. But I I also am looking forward to just some random interactions with people, which is why personally, I, you know, going back to an office and spending oh. some time with a pub, I'm looking forward to. <laughs> we all are. And I don't do Oh, my God, I can't wait. I'm so excited by my diary filling up. It's just brilliant. I'm kind of having to remind myself not to just throw my, I mean, obviously I'm a raging extrovert, but you know, I, not to throw myself into that, but um, wholeheartedly, but like the, literally the first day of open air dining, you know, I've got a dinner booking for yeah. six outside in an outdoor restaurant. I don't care if it pisses down, I'll be, no, I'll be there. So um, yeah, I think, well, I think we're going to appreciate stuff a lot more, which is going to yeah. be great. Uh, last question. I'm just interested, obviously you, you were asked to, speak at different companies events and um, industry events and also to consult on things what are the questions people are asking you I'm just I'm wondering whether what we're talking about tallies up with what businesses are actually doing you know what, what when people are invite you in what are they interested in you sharing your knowledge and opinions about I think working better, which sounds mm. like a really loose bucket, but I think lots of people are aware that they don't work in the most rewarding way for them. So they kind of want advice and answers yeah. on how to do that. And they want to think about that and talk about that. And I call it, you know, I sort of feel like what I talk about is where work crashes into life. It's sort of at the friction point between the two. And I think that that is what's on people's mind. And whether that comes under the guise of parenting or hybrid work or flexible work or remote work it doesn't really matter Mm. the issue the underlying issues are very much the same I think what always strikes me is that lots of people are doing jobs and they don't give themselves a lot of time to step back and maybe read about this stuff listen to a lot of podcasts or blogs so I feel like if you're 
reading those things and just keeping up that actually sometimes I kind of think oh am I really adding any value and I'll be surprised that people haven't heard of deep work or haven't thought yeah. about it and um, they might have read it in a newspaper article but they're not really engaged with it so just giving people the space to think about a new approach or a different way of working or a tool that they might not have seen seems to be quite a reward for people Good. you know yeah. if my 3am I don't know why they book me, <laughs> you know, anxiety and then I then they book me and then then they get really lovely feedback and you think oh that's really interesting yeah. people don't have the time often to step back and think about yeah. this stuff well Christine thanks so much for joining me today I really appreciate your time and um, I will share the details of your website so that people can check out your vlogs on the show notes lovely lovely to talk to you that was my interview with Christine Armstrong I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did Next week, you'll have the pleasure of listening to me and me alone. To mark the end of this series, I'm going to be regaling you with the various newsletters I've written over the past couple of months, most of which reflect the conversations I've had on this podcast. So until then, have a great week.